welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. For the next five weeks, we have the privilege on the Wittenberg Hour of recalling National Lutheran Schools Week and the presenters who shared with us during that time. I am uh, so excited. Um, once again, uh, it is National Lutheran Schools Week, and Wittenberg Academy is celebrating its 10th academic year, uh, which is crazy to think about. Uh, Mrs. Schurman has been uh, a, a fan uh, of Wittenberg Academy from the beginning. She's been cheering us on, and so uh, I'm eternally grateful uh, for that and uh, thankful for, for all the folks around the world who uh, have been cheering us on and and by the grace of God we'll we'll just keep trucking and uh, one one of the things that we have uh, really enjoyed doing the last uh, couple of years is bringing in a lineup of speakers uh, for National Lutheran Schools Week and this week's uh, lineup is uh, fantastic um, we are really looking forward to the entire week. Um, the theme, just for uh, the sake of kind of continuity, um, the theme for National Lutheran Schools Week uh, this year is In All Things. And that theme derives from Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which says, uh, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our first guest uh, this week is Mrs. Katie Schurman. And a lot of you have heard her name, have read her books. Um, and so I'm just really, really uh, thrilled that Mrs. Schurman had time to join us uh, this Monday to kick off our National Lutheran Schools Week uh, speaker series. Uh, Mrs. Schurman has blessed countless people with her writing. Uh, he restores my soul. He remembers the Baron, Pew Sisters, the anthems of 
Zion series. Uh, those are among some of the books that Mrs. Shurman has written. And as a special treat for those of you who are uh, Lutheran Witness uh, subscribers, uh, Mrs. Shurman is now featured in each issue of the Lutheran Witness from now until the end of the year. And Pastor Askins did not pay me for that plug for the Lutheran Witness, <laughs> <laughs> but but I'll let him know that I put it in. Um, and uh, so if you are not uh, a Lutheran Witness subscriber, I would encourage you guys um, to in, encourage your parents uh, to subscribe to the Lutheran Witness. Um, Certainly for Mrs. Shurman's stories, each each issue, uh, but also um, for the the fantastic writing uh, in each issue as well. Mrs. Shurman, thank you so much for being here with us today. I am so thrilled to get to spend the lunch hour with all of you. (laughs) Okay, before I share my screen, because I have some slides I want to show you along with the presentation today. I first want to ask you, because I've got you all up here on my screen right now, you're muted, but if you really enjoy reading stories, would you please raise your hand? Okay, good. If you enjoy writing stories, would you raise your hand? Okay, great. Okay, I'm gonna spend quite a bit of time um, today talking not only about the gift, that storytelling is, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I came about telling stories in hopes that if some of you out there would like to be writers someday, you can get a little bit of a taste of of what it's been like for me. And maybe you can kind of put on my shoes for an hour and see if you, you know, might want to continue walking in those shoes for the years to come. Okay. I'm going to tell you something that might surprise you. I didn't learn to read until I was in the first grade. It started with my parents reading to me. But here's another surprising thing. Even though I didn't learn to read myself until I was in the first grade, I learned to tell a story long before that. Here's what my parents did to help me. They surrounded me with stories in our lives at home. They filled our home with books and not just books with words. They filled our home with books that included colorful pictures and vibrant paintings and even music notes. They took me and my sisters to church every Sunday and feast day, and they filled our ears with Bible stories. And think about that. Bible stories are ancient truths and wisdom set to a meter that is older even than the language that I speak even older than the language that I read in, older than the language that I write in. My parents gave us the opportunity to let our brains steep in the hymns of the church as well. And if you think about it, what are hymns? Hymns are also stories. They're stories of suffering and salvation and joy And all of these stories are set to rhyme, which I think makes them easier to remember. In the car, whenever my parents were driving us around, they played us all kinds of songs, oldies, pop music, country music, Christmas carols, you name it. And if you think about it, all of these songs are stories. They're stories set to music. 
And my parents also took us to theaters. They took us to movie theaters, live theaters, where we could see stories with our own eyes. They took us to family gatherings where we could listen to true stories being told by a myriad of characters, some of them more trustworthy than others. And my parents put Barbie dolls and baby dolls in our hands that we might practice making up stories of our own. And I think perhaps my parents' greatest stroke of genius when it came to raising storytellers is that they gave us time to grow bored. They limited television. They turned off the computer. Well, when we finally got one, they turned off the computer. They pushed us outside in the summer months that we might learn to use our imaginations to fill time and space with thoughts and ideas and stories grander than the ones that we were living. My parents gave us chores to do. They busied our hands, but freed our brains to conjure up all kinds of adventures. Essentially, if you think about it, my parents bred daydreamers. Teacher and philosopher Anthony Esselin, maybe you've heard of him. He explains it this way in his book, 10 Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child. He writes, quote, recall that imagination is a natural faculty in man. Some people make the mistake of fostering it. But imagination is often so powerful on its own that it will assert itself if we simply allow people to live what used to pass for an ordinary life. If you are breathing hard from the airborne soot of a city, all it may take for your lungs to clear again is to spend a week in the country. All it might take for the imagination to breathe again is some, some time in solitude and silence, end of quote. And you know what my, my school teachers throughout the years, they built upon the strong foundation that my parents laid. This is Mrs. Kaufman. Mrs. Kaufman was my fourth grade teacher. And do you know what she did? She made a point of not laughing at me. She did not laugh at me when I read to her my schmaltzy, immature, <laughs> self-composed poetry that I handed to her that was written out in a yellow teal and hot pink spiral brown notebook. And I handed it to her during recess and she did not laugh. Thank you, Mrs. Kaufman. There was Mrs. Larvik. We fondly knew her as Frau Larvik because I grew up in a small country co-op school where the German teacher was also the English teacher. That is not a testament to the poor education. It's the testament to just how wonderful Frau was. <laughs> Frau, she once took special notice of the way I described a woman's petticoat in one of my short stories. It was my freshman year of high school. I wrote delightful detail. 
And suddenly I wanted to write in such a way as to make her notice every word on my page. And she only encouraged me. She submitted my short stories and my poems to local contests. Some of them I won, some of them I didn't. She introduced me to a book called To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And that is a book that still influences my own writing voice today. There was also Mrs. Rowley, or as I know her, mom. Mrs. Rowley was my upper class English teacher, and she held not just my grammar to the highest standards, but also my sense of humor. I remember the time she read a comedic piece I wrote, but she didn't laugh. You see, I had immaturely mocked the physical characteristics of some celebrities in my writing, and she pointed out that humor at someone else's expense is not really funny. My mother taught me that every word I write should be in service to someone else. In fact, my parents together made the perfect, sweet, savory combination of instructors. My father, the creative mechanical engineer, he raised me to believe that I could do anything, that I could create anything, even a fictional world. My mother raised me to know that everything I create should serve my neighbor. And it was the best of upbringings, creative freedom tempered by conviction, imagination by bounds, dreaming by duty. And whatever balance I achieve between humor and pathos in my storytelling today, it is a direct result of my parents' joint influence. Dr. William A. Everett, he is the editor of the Cambridge Companion to the Musical, as well as a shelf full of other musical theater and operetta resources and biographies displayed at your local musicological library. <laughs> but Dr. Everett is also the wonderful, kind, gentle, generous, brilliant man I served under as a graduate assistant for two years straight when I was working on my master's of music and music history. And this man didn't just teach me how to write, he taught me how to write for a long period of time. You see, I am a natural creative sprinter. <laughs> and Dr. Everett, he taught me to pace myself for the marathon. Every time I turned in a new draft of my master's thesis, that's the big paper you have to write at the end of your graduate degree. I won't even tell you the word count. It's a lot. <laughs> but every time I turned in a new draft, do you know what he would do? He would hand it back to me with just one or two markings on it. Sometimes his markings didn't ask for any improvement in the writing itself, but simply requested that I follow a lead of which he was curious to see the end. It was maddening. <laughs> he never, ever, ever handed the manuscript back to me clean. And it took me years to realize what he was doing. 
He wasn't teaching me how to write a perfect thesis. He was teaching me how to write something for a long time, how to live with a manuscript for months, how to endure and how to keep thinking on and grappling with the subject longer than I ever intended or wanted. In other words, are you catching my drift? Dr. Everett was teaching me how to write a book. Thank you, Dr. Everett. My point is this. Writing, I believe, is a God-given talent. It's a calling, even. It's a good work that God prepares for us to do. As God reveals to us in his word, every good and perfect gift is from above. And he equips us with everything good that we may do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight. This is most certainly true. But I did not pop out of my mother's womb with a laptop plugged into the wall. God nurtured the storyteller in me through my parents, through my teachers and my mentors. Because you see, writing, it's a craft, like painting or playing an instrument. A craft is studied and learned over time under the apprenticeship of many people and influences. Even raw talent, even raw God-given talent needs direction and focus. So you, you could think of it this way. An artist may have a natural eye for form, shape, beauty, proportion. The artist may see the vision. I may think of a story to tell. But it is the master who teaches the sculptor how to wield the chisel and hammer, how to chip away root stone to unveil the curving cheek and the delicate flower and the sheer veil the artist sees in his mind's eye. I'm also a music teacher and I, I often tell my voice students, singing begins with listening. If you want to make a beautiful sound, it helps to have heard one first. Storytelling begins with observing. If you want to write a realistic story, it helps to observe real people. And quite often the best stories come from personal experience. Anne Sullivan, perhaps you've heard of her. She was teacher to Helen Keller, our beloved American hero who overcame blindness and deafness to learn how to communicate, write, and even speak. Well, her teacher, Anne Sullivan, wrote this in a paper prepared for an 1894 meeting of the American Association to promote the teaching of speech to the deaf. She wrote, I quote, in order to write, one must have something to write about. And having something to write about requires some mental preparation. The memory must be stored with ideas and the mind must be enriched with knowledge before writing becomes a natural and pleasurable effort. 
Too often, I think children are required to write before they have anything to say. Teach them to think and read and talk without self-repression. And they will write because they cannot help it, end quote. From an early age, I knew that I loved creating, but the content of my stories wasn't very interesting. My plots were boring, predictable, familiar, a rewash most likely of some other story that I had already been told in a book or that I had seen in a movie. Those were my most exotic experiences to date. The trips and adventures and thoughts and ideas of fictional characters created in the minds of playwrights, screenwriters, and authors. In fact, I think my first attempt at writing a story was describing a young girl in the country who had to get in a cellar to survive a tornado. Sound familiar? You see, I... I don't think I'd lived enough life yet to tell a story of my own. It's kind of like what Ann Sullivan was talking about. I, I lacked the experience and I lacked the wisdom that comes from that experience. And honestly, I think I needed to suffer a little first. My first legitimate urge to write a book came not from a burst of creativity, but from a deep well of personal suffering. My husband and I, Lord willing, will be married 20 years this summer. My husband and I were struggling to become parents in our late 20s, and I could not find a book on the shelf that told me the truth about such things, at least not the truth from God's word about such things. My marriage was barren of children. And I suddenly knew unspeakable, unanswerable pain. And for the first time, I found myself in the middle of a story, one I had never read before. And I believe I grew wise under my cross. I graduated from observer to author. And it may not be the fairy tale you are expecting to hear. Katie Shorman, celebrated author, writes a tale of happily ever after. No, that is not how it went down. <laughs> My career as an author begins with a very different headline. Katie Shorman, a Lutheran nobody, writes about infertility, whatever that means, and miscarriages, and the Jesus whose righteousness redeems her barren, childless womb. At least my first book had a marvelous hero, our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> and when I finished writing my first book, He Remembers the Barren is the title, my editor emailed me and she asked a question. She asked, what would you like to write next? I had never considered such a thing. I'm a trained musician, not a writer. <laughs> Though Dr. Everett might say otherwise. <laughs> My days were spent sitting at a piano, not a laptop, 
So the thought of writing another book had just never occurred to me. And also, honestly, I secretly harbored the hope that I wouldn't have time to write another book, that God would suddenly bless me and my husband with the gift of children through conception or adoption, and that I would be too busy homeschooling to write until they were old enough for Wittenberg Academy, of course. Yes. (laughs) But you know what? Our Lord makes our path straight. And that was just not the case for our lives then or now. I don't know what our Lord's will is for tomorrow, but today his will is that we are barren. I remember turning to my husband after I received this question from my editor and I posed the exact same question to him. I said, well, what should I write next? And God bless that dear, encouraging man without hesitation. He said, well, you should write something you want to read. And I remember an immediate pleasurable warmth spreading across my shoulders as an Avonlea-esque island town with an Anne Shirley-ish heroine wearing puff sleeves. I wore puff sleeves today in honor of Anne. They're still in fashion. Centuries later. (laughs) This is what came to mind. While my husband is not only encouraging, he's also wise. He immediately followed up his advice with a second comment. And you should write about what you know. Well, that next Prince Edward Island, all green gables were out, but a small town, church balcony somewhere in Cornfield, Illinois, began to take shape in my mind. You see, my husband and I were living in the heart of Dallas, Texas at the time, and my Midwestern heart, I'm born and raised in Illinois, My Midwestern heart kept meandering back to the nutrient-rich farmland of Illinois where I had been raised. And something I've learned in writing a few books is that there is no better place for a writer to plant her imagination than in the fertile fields of nostalgia. And that's how my beloved fictional town of Bradbury was born. I simply thought on all the things I loved. I thought on church, children, Lutherans, liturgy, one-lane bridges, that humid smell of corn growing in the heat of late August, choir directors, overworked pastors, canned peaches, bumblebees, eccentric organists, long-suffering church secretaries, white-haired female tenors, John Deere tractors, 4-H, bunnies, and suddenly Emily Duke and Arlene Scheinberg and Robbie Jones and a bunny named Carrots and Ben Schmidt and everyone I adore in the fictional town of Bradbury, they began to introduce themselves to me on the page. By the way, this is a sketch made by artist Allison Schrader. Um, she one day sketched out what, how she imagined the characters in Bradbury to look. And I, I have to admit, she kind of she nailed it. It's kind of how I picture them too. So thank you, Allison. First came the book House of Living Stones in 2014, The Choir Immortal in 2015. Yes, that was a fast turnaround. And The Harvest Rays came out in the summer of 2017. And this series is called the Anthems of Zion series. It's a fictional story 
about a small town church choir director and the quirky congregation she serves. Have you read it yet? And if not, <laughs> thank you, Mrs. Benson. Good. <laughs> if you've not, I really hope that you do. And soon, because this series is my best effort at creating a fictional world that preaches the truth of life together in Christ. The truth that that church is made up of a bunch of hilarious saint sinners redeemed by Jesus on the cross. The truth that God prepares good works for all of us to do. That God gives us wonderful, terrible people to serve. That gossip kills people's reputations. That griefs, remember how I talked about barrenness? That griefs, they often compound. That Christians are tempted to despair, but instead we lament like the psalmists. I wanted to write about the truth that those in the ground will rise from the dead on the last day. And I wanted to write a story that witnesses to the world that there is no greater joy than to live out our days on this earth, trusting God's mercy to us in Christ Jesus. And especially for those of you who would like to be writers someday. And by the way, if you write, you are a writer. You may already be a writer today. I should tell you though, that writing as an author, it is not always smooth sailing, okay? For example, I wrote the first few chapters of my fiction series in early 2010, but I didn't pick it up again to work on it until late 2011. And even then I had to stop at chapter 20. It wasn't done yet. I had to stop at chapter 20 in 2012 to write a book called Pew Sisters, which came out in 2013. Are you dizzy? Because I was. <laughs> And that's just what happens sometimes when you're a writer, a contract comes in. And for Pew Sisters, it was a six month contract. That means from the time that I got the contract, to the time I had to turn in the whole book, I had six months. Well, when a contract comes in, that becomes your priority. And a writer's discipline is tested, not only by meeting deadlines, but also by moving from topic to topic, project to project, book to book. There is a time for everything and time when you're under contract is not always your own. It's good that your parents encourage you to do things you don't want to do when you don't want to do them. They're training you to be a good author. Okay. <laughs> Most recently I partnered with Emmanuel Press again, to publish a book called He Restores My Soul. It's a companion piece to He Remembers the Bear in that first book that I wrote. This book is a meditation on Psalm 23. Can you tell by the sheep on the cover? It's a book of empathy and encouragement for all of you. It is nonfiction. These are not made up stories. These are true, real stories. And by the way, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, it still requires good storytelling skills to relay both. Each chapter in this book applies God's promises to a particular kind of suffering that is common to women. 
The book attempts to point each of us to a firm trust in God's word and a resounding joy in his mysterious work of conforming us to the image of his son. And I did not write this book alone. Molly Hemingway of Fox News, Cheryl Swope of Memoria Press and Simply Classical Fame, Cheryl Magnus of the LCMS Reporter, Cantor Christina Roberts, Deaconess Heidi Sias, Deaconess Pamela Bailey Silva, Deaconess Kristen Wasilek of Concordia College, maybe some of these names and faces you recognize, Mrs. Rebecca Mays, wife of the Reverend Dr. Benjamin Mays, and that beautiful cover of the book that was painted by LCMS artist Rebecca Shoemaker in Dallas, Texas. The words printed in this book and the images painted on the front, they are a love letter from all of us to you. Okay, but enough, enough about my books, okay? <laughs> I share this with you primarily so you can get a little feel for what the rhythm of a writer's life is like, okay? And isn't it wonderful when that rhythm is punctuated by book covers? <laughs> but this would be a sad presentation if I limited its content to a discussion of my own little works. The world is filled with good stories, old stories, new stories. And these stories have taught and inspired all of us to better honor, love, and serve one another. But did you know, did you realize that every good story, and when I say good, I mean the ones that really get to us, the ones where we read it and sometimes a tear comes to our eyes, not because we're sad, but because something true was written that, that we recognize and we're comforted when we read that truth. Every good story is a mere reflection of the greatest, truest story ever told. And it's this, God's creation of man, man's fall into sin, and God's work of salvation for him in Jesus Christ. Think about it. From Narnia to Middle Earth, to Siberia, to Hogwarts, the stories we love and read over and over again, they preach to us the ultimate truth from scripture, which is this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, I'm an author. I think stories should be protected. I think you should get to hear about a plot the first time when you are reading it. So I'm going to warn you. I'm about to talk about a few stories and I'm going to spoil some plots. I give you full permission to mute me right now if you don't, if you don't want me to do that. And what I'll do is I'll wave like this when I'm done killing plots, okay? But for example's sake, I, I wanna point out how this is done in some of the great works of literature, okay? So if you would like to mute me until I wave my hand, start it in three, two, one, Okay, the rest of you. <laughs> There's a book called Crime and Punishment. Oh, it's my husband's favorite book. And I was 100 pages into it and I wanted to throw it across the room. <laughs> Not because it was poorly written. No, it's because it made me feel so terrible. 
The main character's name is Raskolnikov, and he is not likable. I realized in reading this book, I want to like the main character to care about him. But do you know what is actually true? Do you know why I didn't like Raskolnikov? It's because I think he's me. Raskolnikov made me look at my own heart, my heart, which sins and murders people with hate. Well, Raskolnikov himself is a murderer from his own hands. And in this book, he's guilty. He's guilty of murder, but he manages to slide in and out of society, avoiding conviction for his terrible crime. But what Dostoevsky, the author does, is Raskolnikov is never at peace. This is part of why we don't like what we're reading. His conscience is fevered with torture. It's tortured by guilt. Even when he doesn't recognize it as guilt, it's tortured by guilt. And only when he turns himself in, when he confesses his sin and picks up his cross of suffering in prison, only then does peace enter the story, both for him and for all those affected by his crime and for all of us reading. It's awful and wonderful. By making so much of the book so awful, Dostoevsky highlights how wonderful it is when we are restored to peace. And he points out that greater love hath no man than that he give up his life. In this case, Raskolnikov um, taking on the punishment that he was due by the law. And we sinners can't help but see in this awful man a reflection of our own sinful hearts. Most of you, if not all of you, I'm sure are familiar with Aslan. C.S. Lewis's Narnia. Do you remember when Aslan gives himself up to be sacrificed on an altar? Doesn't that remind all of us of the Lamb of God and his own sacrifice for us? Or how about Gandalf in J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings? He is an old, tired wizard. He's wise beyond his companions. And because of that, he, he has a patience, a long suffering <laughs> as he's dealing with people who don't know as much as him. But even though he is the, probably the wisest in the fellowship of the rings, it is Gandalf who sacrifices himself in the minds of Moria. He falls into shadow that his companions might escape and live. Does that sound familiar? And what joy when Gandalf returns as the white wizard, calling to mind the image of our own risen Lord on the last day. It's part of why we resound so much when we read about him. We see Jesus. In a short story titled A Retrieved Reformation by celebrated American writer O. Henry. Okay? O. Henry introduces us to a character named Jimmy Valentine. And Jimmy is a convicted burglar who reinvents himself after prison as the shoe salesman. And he goes to a small town of Elmore, Arkansas, and suddenly he's respectable at last. He even manages to win the heart of Annabelle Adams, the daughter of the local bank owner. But when Annabelle's niece accidentally gets locked in an airtight 
keyless safe in the middle of her grandfather's bank. Jimmy has a choice to make. He has a decision. Whether or not to hide his true identity as a thief, right? To keep in shadow, to keep living the life he's created for himself that nobody knows his sin. He has the choice. Does he keep hiding his identity and let a little girl die? Or does he expose his true identity and talents as a burglar? Does he literally show his burglar tools and break out a little girl to save her life? What does he do? Well, he robs the bank. He robs the bank of a precious girl, giving up his new life that another might live. He gives up his freedom for another's. Does that sound like anyone you know? And who here doesn't know the story of J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter, the boy who lived, the boy born to fulfill the prophecy, the boy who gave his life for his friends, the boy who knew the power of a resurrection stone. Does that sound familiar, O Christians? You think about it, the best and the most celebrated heroes in the stories we love, they give up their own lives that others might live. This is not an accident. This is truth reflected in fiction. That's a way for anybody who wants to unmute. I think it's important to note that these famous, iconic, beloved heroes are Christological in nature. I didn't say Muhammad-illogical. I didn't say Buddha-illogical. I said Christological. In other words, the actions, the nature, the vision, the purpose of these central characters consistently mirror those of Jesus Christ rather than of any false prophet, which teaches us something. Truth in story, it seems, finds its fulfillment in the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ rather than in the self-fulfillment of Muhammad. What is celebrated in these greatest stories? Think about it. Love of neighbor over love of self. Service over ambition. Virtue over power. Humility over honor. Good over evil. The greatest and truest tales can't help but point toward the love of God shown to us in the sacrifice of his son, rather than in the ambition and glory of the great prophet of Islam. I just don't think we'd resound with the story the same way if the protagonist just only served himself. Let that be an encouragement to you that you know the truth and look for those stories that tell you the truth. Now, I would be remiss if I did not end this presentation with telling you the story, the best and the truest tale, which shapes every hero, every villain, every plot that has ever mattered in this world. And that story is this. 
God eternal, in whom there is no beginning and no end. He created the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, and all the stars. Every creature that swims, crawls, runs, and flies, and even angels, and the man and the woman from his rib. But Lucifer, the angel, who was jealous of God, he desired power, dominion, and adoration for himself. He was foolish and selfish, desiring that which he did not understand. Lucifer wanted to be God, but he did not want what God is, namely love, righteousness, justice, mercy, and self-sacrifice. So God threw Satan and his followers out from heaven. But Satan was covetous still. If he could not be God eternal, well, perhaps he could rule God's creation. If he could deceive that man into repeating his own mistake, into trusting in himself rather than in God's word, well, then might not man too be thrown out from paradise into Satan's mad kingdom? And so Satan slithered into the Garden of Eden, whispering his lies into the woman's ear. Did God really say, he asked, and the deed was done. That seed of doubt was planted in the woman's fertile heart and Eve all too willing to be like God. She believed Satan's lie over God's word of truth and Adam who knew better, he let her. And so woman and man, they ate of the fruit of the tree from which God forbade and they and their children and their children's children, that's you. They suddenly knew what Satan knew. They knew disobedience, shame, fear, guilt, evil, and pain, and weeds, and barrenness. They knew sin. And they were banished from God's safe, peaceful garden to live in the dark, broken realm of Satan. But Satan is not God, and God is not Satan. There is a difference between villains and heroes. Don't let modern movies fool you. Where villains are vicious, heroes are virtuous. Where Lucifer hates and condemns, God loves and forgives. Where Satan self-justifies, God justifies for you. But here's the great tragedy. Here's that plot twist, that great conflict in the story. It's that man who is not an angel, but made of flesh and blood from the dust of the earth and the breath of God. This man, he must now die. Sin has infected his very flesh, his very cells, his very genetics, and this sin will kill him. Bitter agony. Senseless woe that God's most 
glorious creation created in his own image, created to live forever, now must die. But Satan is not God. And God is not Satan. Where Lucifer destroys, God makes alive. God eternal did not abandon man to Satan. He found a way to save him, to make him new again, to take away that sin which kills him. God sent his Holy Spirit to the Virgin Mary and conceived a child, a child with a capital C, a child begotten from the substance of his eternal father, a child who inherited God's eternal holiness rather than his father Adam's sin. And this child grew to be a man who gave himself up to be crucified for my sin and for yours. And this child poured out his righteous blood for mankind's sake to pay man's age-old debt from the garden and to reconcile him back to God eternal. And God the Father was pleased with the sacrifice of his son. He chose to raise the son from the dead to eternal life. He is the first fruits of the dead that we might follow. And now every man in the flesh, that's us, we have hope. We have hope for Christ is the one in whom we are baptized. We are connected to him. We have put on Christ. He has taken on our sin and given us his righteousness. And that's how God did it. That's how he turned this terrible tale into a, a tale of victory. God, the father, God, the son, Holy Spirit, his name has been put upon you. And we know in Jesus being raised from the dead, he will raise us too. And what is the end of the story of all stories? The end of the story of all stories is this. And look for this in every book you read. Though you die, yet shall you live. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.